Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I know that we spent a good bit of time at the bronze labor, but I tell you one thing. Um, I think one of the best teachers there is, is is the tool of repetition. We don't repeat it just for the sake of repeating it, but I'm believing and praying that we're going to be. There's going to be a takeaway from this that at least we won't forget, and we'll not soon forget what the bronze labor is, what it represents, and the absolute imperative and the clear teaching from the Word of God of what that place means, that turnstile where we go from a courtyard believer to a believer in communion. And, and, and not just that we would hold to that and remember that for the sake of memory and just so that we know it, but that so that we ourselves enter into the communion that God has provided for through the death, burial, and resurrected life of His Son. And that communion is not supposed to be something that takes place in the sweet by and by only, but it begins here in the nasty now and now. And that God's will for us is to go to that bronze labor. God's will for us is to habitually look there and see Him, and after we see Him, to see ourselves uh, and what we look like um, apart from Him and who we are in Him so that we can enter into the place of communion. A place that's covered with badger skins and looks dull uh, and boring and lackluster to those who've never entered in or maybe those who've been in there before but forgot over time what it was like. And that, that we went there and we came to this place because we were brought to the place of of understanding that if we're going to build the wall uh, like Nehemiah and his uh, team did uh, when they rebuilt the wall around the city, that we understand and we must understand that God's way of building the wall is to first go and uh, take care of the temple. Because if the temple is taken care of, then the wall is built out of communion power rather than the strength of our own hands. That's incredibly important. And we know by the, our, our bent and our propensity to, to trust ourselves that our temptation is to do it the other way around. To go to building and then tag God onto the end of it. That's not the way He works. Worship is the priority. What is worship? What does it mean? It's amazing how we've reduced it oftentimes to just 20 minutes on Sunday morning. Then we call that worship. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the culmination really of what should have been going on all the week. And this issue about communion we talked about relative to this verse here in Acts 4.13, that when somebody's in communion and they're not just wandering around in the courtyard, being in the presence of Jesus makes a difference. Amen? Makes a difference. And look at this verse. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. What was the distinctive? It certainly wasn't their education, wasn't their own human intellect, any gifts or talents that would be expected from them. It was the fact that they'd been in the presence of our Lord. This is the this is the inheritance for the believer. And as we've celebrated and affirmed time and time again that that labor, the, the, the one piece of furnishing in the tabernacle that stands between um, the courtyard and communion in the inner, inner the holy of holies and in the most holy place, is there not to prevent entrance, there to prepare us and permit it. It doesn't stand in the way. It is the means. It is the way. And God is not obstructing us standing at the front door and going, you're unworthy. That's the point. We are unworthy. But now He is worthy, and His worthiness has been gifted to us. We're worthy through Him and in Him. 
And we have the right to go in there just as surely as he does. And our access to that is because he is there. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the pilgrim. And so last week we went into it and looked and we saw our need for washing. First at the bronze label, we see him in all of his glory. We see our identity has been made new in him. We go to places like the first three chapters of Ephesians and see our true identity and who we are in Christ and what is the DNA of our faith? What is this great work that he has accomplished? Just like the first 11 chapters of Romans where God just celebrate, just explodes with truth about the glory of being saved, the glory of being in Christ when we were in Adam. And we see him in all of his glory. When we look at him, then, then he starts to illuminate our hearts through his word so that we can look at us and take an honest look. One of the verses that we've looked at before in this and through this has been that the Lord is near to all who call upon Him. And often we stop there. But that's not the, that's not the entire verse. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him in truth. It's the truth that makes us free. Jesus is the truth. And we come to the bronze labor. And when we see us and what we look like in a practical sense, not positionally, but practically, and we see our practical need of cleansing. And then the threshold is the glorious communion that is guaranteed and promised to His elect. And the Bible says uh, that, that uh, uh, God's will is for our... It, it is His will for our sanctification. His will for us to move into the sweet communion. And that is not just better life. That is the very definition of life itself. We've celebrated the fact that at the bronze altar, which is the first piece of furnishings, this is where we see Christ and giving up his life uh, for us on the cross as our substitute. But when we enter into the threshold, guaranteed by our trip at the bronze labor, we see there that he gave his life to us. He gave his life to us. And those, so therefore we can stand there now and look into the word and the labor represents the word of God. And our hearts be illuminated and our understanding be given uh, life to the life giver. And so in that place of communion is where we build and we do and we walk, not in our strength, but we tap into His. A strength that has no limits. And we get there to that place. We talked about last week that our hands and our feet, that's what was required of the priest to wash before we go in. And we talked about their hands in need of washing because we've killed people. We've got blood on our hands. The first thing we look at, the blood on our hands, is our own culpability, our responsibility. Our, it was for our sin that Christ was offered up. He had none. It was for our sin and we celebrate the price at which we were paid. And then we see ourselves and see the blood that's on our hands that gave rise to the need for Him to die. That we've killed people with our mouth. We've killed people, as we talked about last week, by what we've said to them directly. We've killed people by what we've said about them behind their back. We've killed people by what we've given audience to when somebody else is murdering with their tongue and we stand there and, and, and listen to it. And then we've killed people by what we've withheld from them. And that is the very gospel itself, the good news, that hopefully there's going to be opportunities, many, like we talked about in testimony time, to bear that witness in the next couple of days, hours, and weeks. Then... We looked at the blood on our hands and the hands that needed cleaned. And now we need to look at what stands in need of cleansing in our feet. 
And I want us to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, to something that may be kind of obscure in our reading, and we might, as we've seen it before, maybe and, and glossed over it, or maybe not pause to really think about what this says. But there's a character in the Bible, his name is Demas, and he was mentioned three times in the Scriptures. Um, he's mentioned here, and he's mentioned in Colossians 4.14, He's also mentioned in Philippians, uh, I mean uh, Philemon verse 24. And I believe in large measure that our feet that stand in need of cleansing is cleansing of the worldly lusts and the worldly priorities that we we often fall prey to that are designed to feed them. That's what we pick up on our feet. Worldly lusts and the worldly priorities designed by the enemy of our soul to feed those lusts we can fall prey to as a Christian. Someone once wrote, listen to this, a strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much. And I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. Read that again. A strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much. And I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. The Bible says in Hosea chapter 13, verse 6, when a nation was on the eve of being destroyed and judged, the nation of Israel, the northern, northern kingdom. God said this, when they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. They forgot me. I believe the bronze laver, God shows us in a fresh way just how fooled we have been in being independent. This false notion of independence. And then we see Someone who traveled with the Apostle Paul, no less. I mean, do you think he was privy to some pretty heavy theology? I mean, do you think he was around a, a, a good teacher? Absent the Lord Jesus himself and hanging around with him. I couldn't think of a better teacher of the Word of God than to hang around with the Apostle Paul. You want to talk about a seminary education. Not only to hear, but to see God work through a man who was arguably, other than our Lord himself, certainly, and it's because of our Lord, who's arguably the most influential Christian who ever lived. But look what it says about him. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. That word forsaken means to utterly abandon. It has the notion that when needed most, this companion, this this brother, who had shared in the sufferings and shared in all the things that they went through, imprisonment and everything else you could imagine, when he was most needed for encouragement, just to look over there and see that he was still there, right in the fit of things, left me. What was his motivation for leaving? Having loved this present world. You care to guess which Greek word that word love comes from? It comes from agapetos. 
It's a derivative of agape. He had agape for the world. He was willing to, to give himself over to the world whether the world ever gave him something back in return. That's how much love that he had for the world. you imagine? Let's look at this. Look at what happen, can happen to somebody. Look at Colossians chapter 4. We'll just look at that one. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. We don't know a lot about Demas, but we know some. But look what it says about him. In the second, This is the second of three. We're looking at two of three times he's mentioned in the Bible. Look at 4.14. He's closing out the letter. He's talking about um, closing the greeting. And it says, Luke, the beloved physician, and of course Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the Acts. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. That was when things were going well. That's when things were... Uh, uh, there was fellowship. There was communion between he and Paul. And Luke's in the mix. And then when he goes over to Philemon, we won't go there, but you can look at it later. And Philemon, he says, he's my, he's my fellow prisoner. In other words, Demas was... He's among me. He, he was, he's been willing to pay the same price that I've been willing to pay in order to get out the gospel to the Gentiles. By the way, everybody in this room is a beneficiary of that. He's my trusted companion. companion. And that made his departure even all the more painful. Don't you imagine? The fact that they had been through things thick and thin. They had discussions and they could talk about things they had been through that nobody else could talk about around the campfire unless you'd experienced it. You might have to tell somebody about it, but they could never enter into the moment unless you'd been in the moment. And this guy had been there. He had watched God work through the Apostle Paul to preach the gospel, to see people converted, and at the same time see the Jews so bitterly angry at him that he wanted to kill him, and either wanted to kill him at every move. And yet for him to say things, listen, guys, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if, to be honest with you, if it meant their redemption, if it meant their salvation, I would will myself to be even incursed from Christ if it meant they got saved. He said that in Romans chapter 9. We talked about that before. That's a lot of love. I would give my physical life for my children, but I cannot say from this pulpit that I would go to hell for them. And the Apostle Paul said, I would go to hell for my enemies if they got saved. That means the Apostle Paul was gone, and there was nothing left in him but Jesus. Only Jesus could make a statement like that. And Jesus did take hell, which meant our redemption. But if I took hell for somebody, it would mean nothing for their redemption. I'm just saying, when you're hanging around with somebody like this, and God is so full in his life, and you continue to hang in there, and you continue to persevere, and you get to a point where the love for this world so overtakes you, I believe we better be guarded as Christians. John Owen said this, he was a reformer, and he said, love for this present world hinders growth and grace. That's absolutely true. Love for this present world hinders growth and grace. There are three ways the world's mentioned in the Bible. We've talked about it, how it's used. We've got to be careful about what, he's, what we're looking at here. The world's used in three ways in the Scriptures uh, to refer to people. We're to love people. I mean, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Obviously, that's not what He's talking about here. Demas didn't leave because He loved the world. In that sense, if he'd have stayed, it gave evidence of the fact that he loved the world in that sense. To depart, we're not talking about John 3.16 here. We're not, always, we're not even talking about the creative order either. You know, God's creation was good. 
And, of course, it was tainted and, and corrupt with sin. And it groans now, just like we do on the inside for its ultimate redemption. It's groaning, just like we are with birth pains, ready for its future glory, which we will all share and will come after we're glorified. So it's not talking about that either. It's talking about this world system that is under the current control and sway of the enemy himself. That which was turned over to him when we decided to rebel against God and say, God, why do you just get to be God? That's just not fair. We want to be God too. Nana, nana, boo, boo. So we exerted our, and we listened and bought, the, we drank the Kool-Aid, listened to the mess. And now what are we bound by? We're bound by our lusts. That might be the greatest way to define worldliness. Lust is desire out of control. Desire out of control. When our lusts begin to control us, we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And then we will do anything, including manipulating people, resources, and time, in order to accomplish our lustful objectives. Young people, you'd be a bit wise to remember this. God is just as concerned and just as interested at how you arrive at a destination as He is the destination itself. The world says the end justifies the means. God says a just end is only accomplished by just means. God cares. But we can become a bunch of manipulators. We have need of washing. The Bible says in position we're free from this world. We're unattached. We've been loosed by position. But apparently Demas by practice started being ensnared again. He left the Apostle Paul. He wasn't a Johnny come lately. There's somebody who'd been with him through thick and thin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Let's go look at it. What does it say? This issue of worldliness. Galatians 6, verse 14. Positionally speaking, <laughs> we've been crucified to the world and we live in a resurrected life. Look what the Apostle Paul said. God forbid that I should boast, except of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Worldly notions about how a man can be made right with God because after all, we're not that bad anyway. The right of circumcision, all the all the externals. And the Apostle Paul said, in Christ Jesus, once you're baptized into Him, circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't matter. What matters is, is that you're a new creation. You've been made new in Him. Unshackled by this world. Therefore, when we practice unshackledness, it is because we are unshackled by position. That's always the truth. We don't, practice something to make the position real. We practice uh, faith because we have already been made real in Him. It's always the way it works. First John 5, 4 says that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. But Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. What does the Bible say about these matters? as far as the world is concerned and love for the world. Look at 1 John, a famous verse that you've probably been thinking about already. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Will you go there with me? 1 John 2, verse 15. 
We need to wash our feet. We're picking up the dust of this world. We're picking up its priorities. We're picking up its mindset. We're picking up its practices. We're falling prey to worldly priorities. As if this was home and we're staying here somehow or another. And we can make this place better and we can fix it. We can straighten out its ills that God, Jesus, came uh, to uh, improve a world that He and His Word has already judged and is passing away. We're trying to save something God's judged and is going to do away with. Demas having forsaken, has forsaken me having loved this present world. Look what it says. Do not love the world. Now again, the world in the sense here is the world system, the world order that's under the control through the sovereign will of God of the devil. Do not love the world or the things in the world. What are the things of the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In Adam, the lust of the flesh is concerned with pleasure. In Christ, we have the joy of the Spirit. In Adam, the worldly man makes his decisions about what he can see with his eyes. But in Christ, we make our decisions based on what is unseen that we see with spiritual eyes. In Adam, the pride of life refers to the fact that Adam sees everything is about me. But in Christ, it's about thee. Adam is a self-serving, self-exalting man. And that's who you and I used to be. And we're not that way anymore. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Look at Romans 7, 18. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Let's look at these, parse these out. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. What does the Bible say about the flesh? The unregenerate, unredeemed Adam life. What does it say about it? It doesn't have any good things to say about it. It doesn't have one single good thing to say about it. Not one. There's no commendation for the flesh in the Bible. Look at Romans chapter 7 verse 18. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. In me, in the flesh, nothing good dwells. Look what it says in Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those according to the spirit, who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind or the fleshly mind is in, enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor it can, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We've talked about this many times before. If Look how it says it in verse 7. The flesh mind is at enmity with God. It doesn't say that they're enemies. It says it's at enmity. Enemies can be reconciled. If you're at enmity with somebody, there's no possibility of reconciliation. It's a condition. It's a continuous continuous condition. And there are not going to be any negotiations. There are going to be no peace accords. There's not going to be any compromise. There's not going to be any partnership, any unity whatsoever. God has judged the flesh. 
And in life in Christ, He did not come to make the old me better, but He came by the grace of God to make me brand new and not improve the old model. The lust of the flesh. Appealing to fleshly appetites. And then look at this, the lust of the eyes. Look at Proverbs 27.20. This is the tyranny of pornography. Never enough. Look at Proverbs 27.20. What does it say about this? Flesh thing and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Hell and destruction are never full. Hell is eternal and the destruction there is eternal. There's always room for more. And just like that, the eyes of man are never satisfied. The eyes of man are never satisfied. Look at the pride of life. And boy, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Proverbs eight thirteen, And we'll just do a little small sampling of this. But Look at Proverbs eight thirteen, And you know this, and we've talked about this time before. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. God hates human pride. Is it not arguably the seedbed of all sin? Human pride. Man at the center. Because after all, we're not so bad after all. We're just not that bad. There's something redeemable and lovey and cutesy-wootsy about us. Motivated God to come down here and save us. There's something redeemable there. There's something He can work with. That is not true. It's not true. That makes grace all the more gracious and salvation all the more glorious because it's extended to people who are utterly unworthy. I was witnessing to a guy this week and he said, I said, the only people that can go to heaven are ungodly people. He said, really? I said, yeah, it's the only kind of people that are candidate for going to heaven is ungodly people. People who are willing to admit they're ungodly through repentance. Then they're made godly to go to heaven. Hallelujah for that. Man at the center. Boastful pride of life. Look what the, the, the psalmist says. That lo, the Lord dwell on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the prideful man he knows from afar. You know, a couple of weeks ago, the, C, the, 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 uh, the chief human resources officer at Google... Google, Google, this explosive, massive, huge, highly successful company that makes just gobs of money. You know what he said? He said, we're looking no longer for college graduates to graduate from top schools because we found them to be um, a drag on our company. We're looking for people who have intellectual humility. Google. Pagan company with capital P. A-G-A-N. Is that how you spell it? As pagan as you can get. And the chief human resources officer of Google said we're looking for people who have intellectual humility because we cannot work with people who don't. We found them to be that they know everything. And they come in here and they don't play as a team. And they're not willing to admit when they make a mistake to say nothing of the fact that they never learn from their mistakes because they're not willing to ever admit they make one. Even pagans value humility. 
pretty telling, isn't it? We'd rather have, we're not looking, it's not, we're not looking for smart people. We're just looking for people who are smart and don't know it. <laughs> it hasn't occurred to them yet. Because they learn from their mistakes, they passionately pursue what they believe in, but if they're proven wrong, they admit it. And they humbly accept that. And we've found, we want smart people. We just don't want arrogant and prideful people. Wow, that's telling. You know what? Chuck Swindoll said this one time, and I thought it was absolutely, I just thought it was profound. Most people are too big for God to use. That's true. He has to make us small. Isn't that the difference between courtyard and communion? Communion is little people. Courtyard is people who are still big. Who need to be made little. Made little. James chapter 4. This business of loving the world. Look at James chapter 4. Again, the world system. Not, 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 don't, not. Where do wars and fights come from among you? What's the impediment to church life? Doesn't that come from your desires for pleasure that warn your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yeah, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you not think the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The boastful pride of life does not characterize the position of a Christian and should never characterize our practice. And that the bronze labor is where we should repent of that. This gives rise, and I've done a lot of research into this. It's amazing the amount of research. It's contradictory when you go into looking in this. So I won't get into the contradictory points. Suffice it to say this. God's favorite way of identifying Himself in the Scripture is Yahweh. Some 5,321 times in the Old Testament alone, he, just, he, he calls himself Yahweh. Hebrew words, Y-H-W-H. When you see in your Bible in English that Lord is translated in all capital letters, it means that underneath that it's translated from the word Yahweh. You ever notice that? In the Old Testament, you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters. was coming from four capital Hebrew letters that are Y-H-W-H. Nobody knows how to pronounce that, so vowels were added, A and E, so you could say it. Yahweh. It's God's favorite way of identifying Himself. And we can't even begin to understand how big that is. Not even begin, but let's just dip in our toe in that for just a little bit. Really what that means is, is that He is the self-existent one. That's what it means. When He appeared to Moses, He said, Moses, your ancestors didn't know me this way, but you're going to know me this way. Who am I? Who am I supposed to tell that sent me? And, and He said, Here, here's, here's what you tell them. You tell them, 
I am who I am sent you. Matter of fact, when Jesus was arrested, I love this. The only reason I mention it is because I love it. It's when he was arrested in John's account, and the Gospel of John shows him to be God. He turned around and said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Well, he is in italics in most of your English translations because it doesn't belong there. He turned to them and said, I am. You know what they did? Estimated there could have been as many as six to eight hundred people there to arrest him, and every one of them fell on the ground when he said that. Because what he was saying was, back yonder, when I said to Moses, I am, standing right here, I am. And they all fell flat to the ground. Why is that important in regard to this? It is this. It's God saying, I am, therefore, I am. I'm here because I'm here. I exist because I exist. Now let's put my name in that. I am because He is. I'm not am because I am. And the only one that that can be said of is God. I am because I am. And you are because I am. Everybody else, everything else in the creative order that's ever been created, no one can say that but God. I am because I am. I am the self-existent one. Now, what can we draw from that? About five billion things, not the least of which is this. It's not a matter of whether or not you're dependent on God. It's a matter of whether or not you recognize it. Because the bottom line is, we're totally dependent on Him. Is that not true? You breathe right now because I said so. And you will breathe as long as I say so. And you will die when I say so. And it'll all happen because I say so. Can you imagine how arrogant we are? We presume upon God all the time. Be careful. If you say, you know what, next week we're going on vacation, don't say you're going on vacation next week. You need to say if the Lord wills we're going on vacation next week. Because you will not go on vacation next week unless the Lord wills. In other words... We are completely dependent on Him. And whether or not we recognize that, it doesn't make it any less true. It is absolutely true. And that should absolutely destroy our human pride. I am, therefore I am. You are and I am because He is. End of subject. And only God can say that. And he's so fond of that, he put that in the Bible 5,321 times. I am. Just remember. Because see, we stayed in need of being reminded of that. I am. I'm saved this morning because he is. That's just it. I'm sorry. It's because he is. It's because he did that. Not me. They ought to do something to our worship. So what is the worldly man? The worldly man can be summed up in this. He's the man that acts independent of God, even though he's dependent of God and doesn't know it. And we're here, by God's grace, after having discovered this, to 
be reminded of it constantly, hopefully live that way, and then tell other people that you're dependent on God, whether you know it or not. Is that not true? Jesus Himself, here's how we can be victorious through all of this. Jesus Himself overcame. Because see, Demas, having forsaken me, has forsaken me because he loved this present world. Look at Luke chapter 4. And we're going to have the Lord's Supper. I didn't get through all of this. Now here's what we're going to do, God willing. I'm planning on going through two more weeks. I thought it was one more week of the bronze labor, but we're going to have to go to, to finish this. We don't get to finish this morning. <laughs> Look at Luke chapter 4. This is the temptation account, Luke's account. And strangely enough, um, and nobody knows why, um, but God does. The order of the temptations is different here in Luke's account than it is in Matthew. Luke switches it around, and the second one is the third one in Luke, and the third one is the second one as it's compared to Matthew as account. The only reason I say that is is because this one seems to follow the order here of God saying, don't love the world. And let me tell you why. Look what it says. Verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God. Let me just say this. Do you think that there was any doubt in his mind who he was talking to? Absolutely not. Junior demons, junior demons, demons in training would see Jesus in the Scriptures and go, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. You think the chief kahuna is not going to know that? Sure he knows that. It's the same thing he tries on you. Well, if you are the Son of God, and you go, you know what, I ain't going to talk to you. We don't have dialogue with the devil. But let me tell you something. I have the spirit of adoption inside me by the Holy Spirit. I've been adopted in the family of God whereby I say, Abba, Father. I am the Son of God. Through the Son of God. Amen. So he says, okay, if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him saying, it is written. There again, powerful words. Because what is he doing? Quoting from the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word that proceeds out of his mouth. He was tempted in the lust of the flesh. To exercise a fleshly appetite in an ungodly way. Because what he was saying is this. I am dependent on God, not you. I'm dependent on God and not me. I trust Him and not you. I'm not going to respond to what you do. God's going to feed me. And He's going to feed me when He gets ready to. And when this fast is over with and all this is over with, and God gets ready to make my permission, provision, He will make it. And in, in then, until then, I'm going to rest and trust in Him. That was the lust of the flesh. Look what He said then. Then the devil took Him up on a high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment time. And the devil said to Him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Was that a valid temptation? Of course it was. Was it his to give? Yeah. It was. He didn't say, you can't do that. What would be the basis of tempting him if he couldn't do it? The temptation had no teeth or credibility. It certainly had credibility. What was that? The lust of the eyes. Let me show you. Look at all this. You never have a bit of it. The lust of the eyes. And he said, listen, here's the deal. 
Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. I'll tell you something right now, I'm dependent on Him. I'm trusting in Him. I rest in Him. My Father's in charge. I am His Son. He is who He says He is. And by the way, because of Him, I am who I say I am. And I'm resting in Him. Lust of the eyes. And then He hit Him with the pride of life. Then He brought Him to Jerusalem, set Him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, here He goes again, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him and said, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now you've read this enough to know this. But what he did was, is he quoted a scripture from Psalm 91 to him. And the devil took a scripture that talks about and speaks of trusting God and contorted it into a scripture about testing God. So the devil does do that with the Bible. What was he appealing to? The pride of life. Hey, take matters into your own hands. Speak it! Hey, speak it into existence. This is the world. You have dominion over it. Take charge. Be in control. Say disease. Go forth and difficulty and problems and all of those things. Just speak them out of your life. and Speak it. Speak it. Take authority. Take authority. It's the pride of life is what that is. And Jesus said, no, if I rest in Him, I rest in Him. I rest in Him and I know what His Word says. And He got squeezed and what came out of Him was what was already in Him and that was the Word of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because see, friends, if we don't find our all in Him, we will find it nowhere else. If we don't find our all in Him, we will find it nowhere else. I'll tell you something right now. Let's, let's just from this day forward, See, here's what we do in, in practice often that we shouldn't, we don't do by position, but we do it by practice. We're asking God to be faithful to an unfaithful bride. We're asking Him to keep His vows, which He will. He's obligated to in His Son. But we're asking Him by practice to be faithful to somebody who's catting around. And we're trying out the world. And we're, we're by design. We want to either uh, retreat from it that's not, that doesn't secure a victory over it. Or we want to become like it. There's no witness for that. Or we just want to get complacent. All three are the wrong response. In the middle of it, we trust Him, we rest in Him, we trust His Word, and we say, you know what? I'm not going to be led by the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I am not the center of my world. Christ is. And because He is, I'm going to rest and trust in Him underneath the badger skin. What does the Bible say? What's the verse that's in the middle of the Bible? If you take it and spread it out, we've talked about this many times. You take the verse that's smack dab in the middle of the Bible. It's Psalm 118, verse 8. It's the center message of the Bible, really. What does it say? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Now guess who that includes? The person who stares you back in the mirror. It is better to trust in the Lord. So the blind's labor, God destroys our trust in ourselves. He reveals Himself as being the one who's independent, the self-existent one. God is. I am. Therefore, I am. You are because I am. It'll never be said of you that you are because you are. Never be said of anybody else. Nobody. I don't care who the big shot angels are. Anybody. Talk. Peter, Paul, John, the apostles, all them big shots. They're all. It's all the same for all of us. 
and we can rest in that, in a finished work accomplished by a loving, compassionate, benevolent, kind, powerful, and real, truthful Savior. And we get into that rest, and we stop trusting in our works, and that's when we begin to trust in His. And then we can face any challenge head on and walk right into it with joy. Because we're saying, you know what? You put me in here. You put me in this chamber. You put me in that fire. And the only thing that I'll lose is what binds me. And God will put me in that fire. And if He chooses to deliver me through it, I'll be delivered. If He chooses to be taken home, I'm fine there too. So I'm all right. I've got unfurred brows. I'm not worried. I'm not fretting. I'm not looking around with with, with my fingers. You know, biting them off. I'm not doing any, any of that. I've quit, I've quit trusting myself. I've started trusting Him. Courtyard, you're still trusting yourself. Communion, enter into trusting Him. We've got to have the Lord's Supper. Oh, isn't that a wonderful celebration of the fact? But I want to ask you, let's ask the Lord. Lord, am I really in practice acting independent of you even though I am dependent on you? Am I as foolish as the fools around me who say, and presume upon my life and what I'm about to do and will to do? Do I do the same thing? Are you involved in my choices? Are you in the middle of them? Or have I kind of just put you on the side and I say, I'll get to you later and I'll consult. Just in case it comes hard. Maybe I'll run up on something that's difficult. I'll look at you every now and then. Or are you Yahweh to me? I hope that you never read the word L-O-R-D in the Bible, all caps, ever the same again. When you see that word, you understand it's spelled that way. And it's God's favorite way of identifying Himself because that's who He is. Now, if that's who He is and you belong to Him, what, pray tell, are you worried about? Is that not a good question? If that's who He is and you belong to Him, what, pray tell, are you worried about? Only, only reasonable answer to that question should be absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you always make good on your promises. Yahweh, the total sum of all things, and the one through whom and by whom all things have been created and by your will and by your power they exist and consist and they're held together by the word of your power. It's not even that you made all and then retreated from it and said, okay, just run its course. You've made all and you're involved in all actively. And Father, I pray, would you just illuminate our hearts of the bronze labor? What areas of our lives are we pandering to our lusts? What areas of our lives do we are, are we operating by what we see rather than being operating by faith and what we don't see? And in what areas are we so prideful? We know in practice we can ultimately be prideful, but in position we're not at all. We're humble people. And I pray, Father, we will act out that grace that you'd help us to go through that turnstile into sweet communion and say, no more courtyard for me. No more courtyard for me. From now on, it's nothing but thee. And you receive all the attention and glory as we go to the labor right now. And as we, as we look in the labor and look into the word about the uh, supper that you have prepared a place for us to sit at and enjoy and partake, 
as an act of profound, divine, unspeakable worship to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're sweet.